This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Hi there, and welcome to another law-abiding, justice-serving, contractually obligated episode of the Creative Agency Podcast. If you haven't already guessed, we're going to be talking about the legal side of running a creative agency today. We have a great interview with Josh Barrett, a creative agency lawyer and owner of Create Legal. Josh has helped our agency, Murmur Creative, in many ways over the years. If you are in need of legal services for your creative agency, Josh is the man, and you can visit him at createlegal.com. So we're going to be talking with Josh about some common issues that creative agencies deal with on a regular basis, including the dreaded scope creep, bad contracts, ownership agreements, profit sharing, and more. If you run a creative agency or sell creative services, the knowledge imparted in this podcast may save your butt somewhere down the line, so pay close attention. And don't forget that it was the Creative Agency Podcast that saved your agency from impending financial ruin. P.S. I love the reviews of the Creative Agency Podcast on iTunes. Keep them coming, and I'll keep interviewing people who are smarter and cooler than me. And now on to the show. All right. Well, I am here with Josh Barrett of Create Legal. Um, Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks. Glad to be here. So Create Legal is a legal office, a law firm that specializes in creative services or creative agencies, actually. That's right. So we work with all all sorts of creative agencies, designers, developers, people in video production, uh, writers, photo, video, the whole gamut. Nice. Is that like in Portland, Oregon, are there many organizations, uh, law firms like yours that specialize in creative agencies? You know, I I, I know there are a couple. Um, some have a little bit different focus. Some focus a little bit more on fine art or might focus more on entertainment law. So I know there are a couple and I know of a few nationally, but um, I think it's pretty unique to have a very narrow industry focus. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of just general business law firms, but to have a a narrow industry focus is different. Gotcha, gotcha. How did you get into, how did Create Legal begin? Well, I spent a good 10, 15 years at a larger law firm downtown with all the usual trappings, you know, dark wood and those types of things. And when my kids were started to go to school and I was dropping them off at the, uh, at the playground, the other parents started asking me questions and they were all developers and designers. And I realized, uh, one, that I really enjoyed talking to them about their work and, and two, that there was a, an area of focus here. So I decided to go out on my own about five years ago and I started Create Legal and, uh, I'm growing my business just like a bunch of growing agencies. That's great. How, how many people are Create Legal? We're just three right now. And for the business work that we do, that's a good that's a good size. It's not like when you're tackling big, complex litigation where you need teams of people. You know, Most of what we do is contracts and writing. Uh, and that works well with a small, efficient team. Mm-hmm. Nice. How many uh, creative agencies do you currently consult with? Gosh. Um, well, I have... I have clients that are anywhere from uh, freelancers uh, up to um, multidisciplinary agencies with 100 employees, 
um, mostly located in Oregon and Southwest Washington, though I have uh, clients around the country. You know, I have hundreds of different agencies. You know, they don't all have needs at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, fortunately. Uh, but um, so at any given time, I'm working on 20 or 30 different matters with different agencies of different stripes, but uh, quite a quite a broad spectrum. Why, why do you think an agency should choose um, a lawyer that specializes in creative services, creative agencies? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is probably true, whatever your industry is, but finding a lawyer that focuses on, um, that has knowledge about your industry is great because they can ask you more specific questions. They understand the types of work that you do, the pressures, the types of things that clients pull and just can get, just can engage on a, on a different level. You know, the business law behind uh, a lot of creative agency issues isn't terribly complex, but having the industry specifics can really make a difference in making sort of some generic business advice into something really specific that you can use and make a difference uh, within your business. If we chose to go with a lawyer that was um, not, didn't specialize in creative services, do you think we could end up spending more money or going down sort of roads that wouldn't be as productive? Like there's some danger there? Um, You know, it's, it's hard, you know, there's, there's lots of great lawyers and like anything else there's there's good there's good ones and bad ones the problems that i've seen with people that come to me is that they have generic solutions to specific problems and um you know your agency is very unique every agency is very unique and the types of stuff you do and the agency changes you know a lot of my design what firms that started as design firms in the last few years have added some video production to because it's a real highly demanded uh, product and that's a whole different set of issues so that contract that you started with that might be a general services agreement suddenly doesn't work or is not as tailored and specific when you start adding um, video production or events or something like that into your service offering and so um, again, uh, having something specific is um, the best way to make sure you're delivering exactly the right stuff and covering the right issues and communicating well with your with your clients. Mm-hmm. What What are one of the most uh, common issues that you hear from creative agencies um, on the legal side? Gosh, um, there's there's quite a few. I'd say there's four or five that come across my desk most often or that have the biggest opportunity for making a difference. You know, we can talk about them in more detail, but just at a high level, like managing scope creep, I haven't, I haven't met a single client that has got that completely dialed. I, I <laughs> so think, we're not alone. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think everybody struggles with that uh, a little bit. Um, really understanding and applying um, the right terms and language and managing client expectations around intellectual property issues. Um, I think just bad contracts and bad, bad writing and the consequences that fall out from, from bad contracts is a common thing. I see, um, growing agencies when you move from one owner to two or three is all the partnership agreement or ownership agreement issues. And then last I'd say, um, payment, making sure, you know, you're stuck with the dreaded net 30. How can you break that cycle? How can you do something better for your agency? How can you have conversations with your client to change that up a little bit? I think those are the five, you know, five things that I see pretty frequently. 
Nice. And net 30 is basically you when your billing cycle has sort of a like a penalty after 30 days. Is that uh, correct? Not, it usually refers to the idea that um, I'll send you an invoice at the end of the month. You have 30 days to pay the full amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that 30 days, maybe a consequence or a penalty comes in or a late fee or interest or something like that. And the, the problem there is that when you do work on January 1st, if you invoice at the end of the month, it may be March 1st before payment is late um, or the client could wait that long. And that's a long time to wait for some dough. So mm-hmm. a bunch of different ways to kind of change that up is, and those are more business things than legal things, but they have legal implications in your in your contracts. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about scope creep. I know that's something that all agencies deal with and um, we deal with it. And I know that there's, you know, ways of sort of doing work up front and in your contract that can sort of help when issues like that arrive down the road. Yeah. You know, I, I, I define scope creep as, as doing work for free. I mean, if your scope changes and you're getting paid for it, that's, that's great. You've sold some more work, but what more often happens is the client is asking for things or the job has changed to such that you're doing work, you're not getting paid or not getting paid a fair amount for it. And you're sort of trying to get things back on track. I think the, where a lot of scope creep comes from is sort of contracts that don't define deliverables and expectations well, and also just from discipline in pricing. A lot of, I see, especially newer agencies, pricing jobs uh, on the assumption that everything goes smoothly. And it never, nothing, no job ever goes perfectly (laughs) smoothly. And that you want to sell that you're going to run a good job uh, and it's going to go smoothly, but that just doesn't happen in real life. We're not robots. Life happens and both on the agency side and the client side. And so um, bidding projects to reflect reality, I think is really important to creating a, uh, a conversation about managing scope creep when it does, when it does happen. Um, how, so how would you define, uh, deliverables in a project in order to sort of keep, um, scope creep from happening? Yeah, well, you know, every statement of work has a section about deliverables, but then what you do from there is, um, uh, that's where you can really make a difference. So I've seen something as generic as a you know five-page website, uh, but you can get into a lot more specifics there, and I think that's where you make a, a big difference in really defining what, what those different pages are, what the branding elements are gonna include, how many different lockups are you gonna do of a particular logo, um, what CMS you're going to use, uh, are you using stock images, or are you gonna do original photography? And almost as important, or maybe more important than defining what is included, is having a section of exclusions that the deliverables do not include the following things. Um, you know, maybe you maybe you spec out in the deliverables that it you're going to have three meetings: a kickoff, uh, a middle of the road, and then a pre-launch or something like that. Um, and then when the client wants extra meetings, then you have a basis for saying, "Hey, this is beyond the scope." And the way I say it is uh, would you like us to either bill you hourly or would you like me to send you an an adjusted statement of work for this extra stuff? Mm -hmm. So there's not a third free choice. Um, It's always um, how can we turn this into a billable event? And the challenge for agencies and the the account people in a growing agency is 
doing that the first time an out-of-scope request comes in. And, and the inclination is like, well, we'll do this first one for free or maybe the second one, or we, you know, we don't want to mess with a bunch of paperwork for that. And you sort of open the door at that point. And I, I really encourage folks that even if you decide to expand the scope and not change the fee, that you still have that same conversation is you say, hey, this extra request is, you know, extra round of revisions. It's outside the three we specified in the SOW. Um, we're happy to do one extra one uh, with no charge. I just wanted to point out that it was outside of scope. And, and if we go again, we're going to have to do an updated statement of work or we're going to have to bill for it hourly. And when you raise that flag the first time, you've set the stage for when you want to turn on the clock uh, going forward. Yeah, I know that we very, I mean, that almost always happens where some part of a project gets a little extra time or an extra round, and we often do give it for free. Um, I think that our, our batting record for actually telling the client is probably about 50-50. We yeah. could probably do better there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, the first time, the first few times uh, with each client that you have to raise that flag and say, hey, this is outside of scope, it's billable, or we're going to do it for free, but it would otherwise be billable. That's a hard conversation to have, you know, talking about money, telling clients it's going to cost more. It's a hard conversation to have. But after you do it a couple times, you'll get better at it. And you'll have a nice way to constructively say that. And it's a better time to do it then than after three or after five. And when you feel like you're underwater and, and there's a lot of resentment on both sides uh, and asking for the 13th round of revision. And I have clients that say, I'm, I'm stuck now. I'm on the 13th round of revision and I don't know what to do. So <laughs> that, you know, in, define what, how many rounds of revision you're going to include in your deliverables and stuff after that is a conversation. Nice. That's good advice. You know, when you look at other examples of exemplary service or exemplary products, they're priced appropriately. You know, your your Apple device is really expensive and you can go get free help at the at the store anytime you want, but you know, you've paid for it. And just back at the beginning when we talked about where scope creep comes from, and it comes from pricing things, thinking everything's gonna go perfectly. And once you start to accept a little reality and flux into your pricing, then you're in a better position to go the extra round or do uh, around for free because because it's built into your overhead it's built into your pricing and that's just that comes with experience you know no one wakes up and knows how to price creative services perfectly you know i was talking to omfg co um, in a previous interview they were saying that one of their first jobs for rebranding olympic provisions was a three thousand dollar job that took them a year oh, wow <laughs> wow and they at the end realized that they you know had had lost way more money than they had actually um would ever actually see doing this project um in the end it worked out nice as a referral for them because they sure. had branded a well-known business but um yeah, they had no idea how to price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Happy ending, but they don't always turn out that, yeah. that way, you know. Um, and that's that's the 13 rounds of revision story right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about intellectual property. Yeah, so there are a lot of things wrapped up in intellectual property for creative agencies. You know, most of what agencies create is subject to copyright. That's the main issue that's being involved there. And uh, most of the clients think that, you know, regardless of what the contract says, 
most clients think that, well, I'm going to pay for some stuff and I'll own it at the end. And because, you know, we use licensed fonts and uh, stock photography and open source code and CMSs, there's a lot of things that the client doesn't own at the end. And so intellectual property is a big one in my opinion. that I think is about managing expectations and just helping the client understand that this isn't like a widget where you go and pay and you own the widget. You're going to get a bundle of rights, some of which you own, some of which you don't, and what that means and what the you know what can a designer, uh, what can an agency really do for you in certain departments and what and what can't they do? You know the the big number one thing, and I think I think everybody's got this, but I still see contracts that don't have this issue covered is that if if the plan is for the client to get ownership of the work at the end that the contract says that they they don't get ownership until they pay for it right and most defaults especially if you get a contract from a big procurement department and a big fortune 500 company it just says that as the work is created the client owns it and instead it needs to say upon payment in full the client owns it. Uh, and that's, that's the number one, you know, leverage that an agency has if there's ever a payment, uh, payment dispute Mm -hmm. is, is having ownership of that stuff. But it's a, it's a common clause that I see missing, especially in those one-sided independent contractor agreements that come over from, from certain clients. I mean, you're not in your head. You guys must see that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we've had issues with clients, you know, wanting work that we haven't finished. Or, I mean, I suppose that the tendency, sometimes even when we know we're in the right, even though we know we're protected by our contract, we will err on the side of sort of de-escalating a situation. Sure. <laughs> and sometimes we'll deliver the work, even though we know that, you know, that they don't necessarily have us over a legal barrel, but we you know, we don't want to gum up all of everything else that we're doing and, and deal with a client that's being difficult. Sure. But yeah, it's nice to know that we have those protections in our contract and then you've, you personally have helped us get those in our contract. <laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah, it does happen sometimes. And, you know, as hard as you try with a client to like deliver on their expectations, sometimes they don't know what they want until you know, you're halfway through the process or almost all the way through the process. And so, you know, I often tell clients that a contract is not a proxy for communication, that you put everything down in this contract and you should almost assume, and it's, maybe it's a little sad, but you should almost assume that, that your client's not reading it or not everybody is reading it. I think that there's no substitute for maybe at the kickoff meeting or maybe as you deliver the contract is to say, hey, um, you know, here's our standard terms and conditions, or maybe you're negotiating the terms and conditions that they've provided, and you've added some things to it. But just to say, you know, there's, have a look, uh, I think you'll find it fair and reasonable. But a couple big things I just want to call out, you know, one, no ownership transfer until things are paid for, two, three, four, and just lead them through the big things. And your lawyer can help you identify what those big things are. But there's no substitute from sitting across the table from someone and explaining and have them nodding along and it be the right person mm-hmm. that you're talking to, you know, the person with uh, the business contact that they understand the limitations and benefits of 
of how the contract works. Yeah. Are there any things in a contract that you think every every creative agency should have? I know you talked about the sort of list of things that are not included. And then you also talked about calling out rounds of design, how many um, iterations. Is there anything else that's sort of really important that should... Well, there's a tons of things that are really important. Um, you know, I when I when I review a contract, I often have a list of half a dozen or ten things that are here's my critical review points. And you know, it's always a balancing act. If you have a, it's a big contract and you have a big budget for legal review, you you dig down to the next level. Sometimes you got to do the client says, Josh, I want a a big picture review, and so I focus on the five or six things that are important. Mm-hmm. And so transfer of ownership is a big one. Limitations of liability clauses are, are is another thing. Um, appropriate representations and related indemnification clauses, and these are you know highly summarized and probably feels like a lot of legal jargon, but they're <laughs> the things that I look for. But you know, one that is really important, especially for any agencies that are doing any sort of branding. So logo work, naming, taglines, um, coming up with um, uh, things that a client might use as trademarks or service marks is that the, the creative agency, the designer is not a trademark lawyer. So while, while a designer might do some Google searches for some different names and look at dictionaries, they're not doing trademark clearance searches. And so it is... I've had in the last year or two a couple disputes of where the client maybe, you know, a year after the logo is delivered, the client gets some trademark infringement claim, usually bogus, but they get some trademark infringement claim and says, hey, you're abusing my my trademark. And the client turns around to the agency and says, hey, you gave me work that is infringing. And that's a really important distinction and clarification to make in the contract. And so... Like in the excluded services and deliverables we talked about, that's a good place to say, you know, we're not we're not doing trademark and copyright clearance services. Or if you are doing certain types of maybe you do a, a Google search or two, but it's important to say that that's not a substitute for trademark clearance. And if you mm-hmm. think your client might want to register a logo or register a name with the trademark office is when you present comps. And the first few ideas is that's the time you need to build into your budget and your timeline for the client to take that comp to their own lawyer, not you, not the agency and not the agency's lawyer, but to take that to their own lawyer and do a a trademark conflict search. Mm -hmm. And that's the time to decide if there's going to be a problem. And that's the that's the client's determination to make, not the not the designers. Um, But too often the the contracts are silent about this and again this is client expectations are like you gave me something that is infringing even though it's really not but the the client doesn't understand what it means to make a logo and they just assume well you're giving me something that there's no chance of infringement but that's a trademark lawyer's job to do not a designer not a creative agency's job to do so make sure your excluded deliverables make that point uh, really clear that's really important to think about. I, you know, we were working on a logo recently for um, a beer brand, 
and um, about halfway through the process, the client said, hey, look, look at this. Uh, this looks a lot like the Aviation Gin logo. And we're like, whoa, it does. Like we had never considered or even looked at the Aviation Gin logo. It was just happenstance that it looked somewhat similar. And we changed directions at that point. But if he hadn't brought that logo to us and we hadn't really thought about it, we could have given him a logo that could have brought infringement upon him in, right. some, in some form. Right, and even if the ultimate you know, infringement claim was bogus, you know, beer versus hard liquor, you know, whatever the industry is, um, you still have a problem with your client, the client sort of looking at you asking about that. So that's a great thing to clarify up front. And, you know, you'll have to work in tandem with your client on, on vetting, on vetting those things. And, you know, the alcoholic beverage industry, there, there are no new names for IPAs. I'm convinced <laughs> <Right>. of that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, another thing that, that, um, I was thinking of was, um, shoot, no, I just forgot it. Oh, uh, we've done naming for some clients and we will, you know, present a list of names and we'll do the Google search and we'll, you know, I think we even have searched, you know, copyright databases, but like you said, like we're not trademark lawyers. So we need to be sure that they understand that. And that as, as much as we may have Googled it, there still could be an issue. That's right. And, and, you know, trademark is all about use. And when you're designing a logo, it's a little bit in the abstract, you know, the audience, you know, the products and services, but um, you don't know fully how the client is going to apply that in commerce and that evolves over time. And that's where trademark claims come from. So even with all the searches that a designer could do, they're still limited by context because they don't, they won't ever know the use nearly as well as, as the ultimate client will. And that's where rights come from and where infringement comes from. So, you know, just doing a, a name, a word mark search in the trademark database is, you know, that's a complete trap because there's lots of other types of searches that can be done, the things that a layperson would miss. So a trademark expert can can help with those types again. Again, the, the client's trademark lawyer should be doing those right, things. Right, right. Not um, us. That makes sense. Yeah, not the designer. Well, let's talk a little bit about bad contracts, which you're probably relatively... <laughs> well um, acquainted with yeah i i I do see a few every day (laughs) um and that you know this is something that i'm strangely uh really passionate about uh when i i think everybody when they goes to law school or every potential lawyer when they go to law school they think about contracts as as methods for they're the source of disputes and their methods for dispute resolution and we fight about contract language but in the real world uh Contract is, I mean, of all the contracts that get written, a tiny percentage go turn into a dispute. And of that dispute, an even smaller percentage go into litigation. But those are the ones that we hear about in the horror stories. And so when you think about that, in most instances, you can focus on a contract for its other purposes, and that's communication and getting everybody on the same page. And I think it's it's an opportunity for creative agencies to communicate value and to communicate with their client and get everybody on the same page and create a plan for a successful engagement. And when that document is used as this through the looked at through the lens of we're going to have a fight and we're going to be in court, then you're you're focusing on this per, small percentage of a percentage of a percentage scenario. And it's just I mean, it's just bad gambling or, you know, bad odds, you know, focus on the 
the thing that's most likely to happen or make a business judgment uh, about where you're going to put your focus. And that doesn't mean you ignore the what could happen in a dispute scenario, but let's put a lot of emphasis on what happens in most deals and that they mostly go well, and how can we make that better um, instead of most of our emphasis on a fight. Mm-hmm. So how do bad contracts usually happen? I mean, my my guess is that people find something online and they download it and they make it into their contract. Yeah, I think that's some of it. Or yeah, something gets appropriated from a different use. Um, when I see creative agencies, you know, sometimes it's not the creative agency's contract. It's the contract that comes from the client and mm-hmm. they're not in a negotiating position to insist on their own form uh, is the, the contract will be hopelessly generic, right? It'll be the same contract that they use for someone that provides, you know, consulting services to their uh, IT department, to someone that makes, you know, widgets for the manufacturing department, and then someone that helps them design a logo. And that generic contract just can't deal with all the realities of creative service delivery. Um, I think the other thing is, and you know, for creative agency contracts is, uh, you know, you're, you're growing your business. You, you pick up the phone, you call your lawyer and you say, uh, lawyer, I need a services agreement. And then you hang up the phone and the lawyer grabs a generic form of services agreement. And unless there is a detailed interview with the creative agency about the types of work and the problems and you know, what are you worried about? What, what types of clients are you dealing with? Are you dealing with fortune 500 clients? Are you dealing with mom and pops? Are you dealing with, you know, $5,000 jobs or $500,000 jobs? You're going to get a generic contract. And, um, and that's, that's, you know, that's a unfortunate reality of, of some legal practice is, is we forget to take the, to dig in a little bit and and get those specifics about the client. And so that's what a, you know, narrow industry focus will help the lawyer ask questions uh, of you about exactly what you're doing and making sure that client is, or that contract is really tailored for you. I think the other thing is that, you know, lawyers are a pretty risk averse group and clients are coming to us to help manage risk and, the, the, the consequence is it feels like the way we need to do that is drafting a very one-sided contract that favors the agency. But I think that, um, I think that actually has adverse consequences because you, you know, the, the story I like to tell is you have this great website and you have these great business cards and portfolio and you get a client in and they're all excited about the work and you, you do this great pitch and, and everybody's on board and then you slide this one-sided contract across the table and it's full of gobbledygook and legalese and, and it's, it, it just hits like a lead balloon that it's totally inconsistent with everything else that you've been communicating about. And so your opportunity to sort of essentially stay on brand with your pitch has been lost and it's been killed by this, by this thing. You know, contracts are still formal pieces of writing, and they are going to be different than a exciting pitch deck. But they don't have to be this this big, one sided bit of gobbledygook that gets in the way of the rest of your communication. Right, and you're you're a proponent of sort of using natural language in contracts. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and you know, I distinguish. I mean, we've heard about plain English. 
I've heard another commentator use the word standard English, and I think that's better is that, you know, contracts are a formal style of writing, sort of like code is a formal style of writing. And, um, but that doesn't mean that it has to be difficult to understand. And we can use uh, plain language and we can use, uh, we can take steps to clear up ambiguity and, and avoid problems before they start. You know, if the agency doesn't understand the contract, the client probably doesn't understand it. And then it's not achieving its job. Right. Um, you're not getting on the same page. And I, you know, those things also have consequence. They increase negotiation time and increase the cost of negotiation on both sides. And like I already mentioned, it, it decreases, uh, trust and it decreases, I don't know, deal velocity. It, you know, it delays the time until you get your deposit and can get on with paying work. And those, all those things, you know, having to pay your lawyer is a direct cost, but time uh, and lost trust, those things also have a cost, uh, an intangible cost, but they have a cost to a creative agency. And so I think that um, I encourage agencies to have a conversation with their lawyer about how can we get this contract to help manage some of those other costs that we face? How can we keep those costs down? How can we um, maybe we have a more middle of the road agreement because that decreases our negotiation time. It decreases our negotiation cost and it increases trust. So those are some different things that an agency can ask for from their lawyer to to make that document work for them a little bit better instead of being that that one sided form template. This reminds me, um, we recently had a client who didn't like our contract and told us that we sh- they wanted their lawyer to write the contract. And you're aware of this piece. And we came to you and asked, us what, asked you what to do. <laughs> but um, how, how often does that happen where, um, you know, the client who wants to engage you is just like, actually, we don't like your contract. Like, we want to do our own contract. And, and what should a creative agency sort of do in that sort of instance? Sure. Um, I think there's a couple things to do Uh, first, and this comes before you're even talking about contracts is when you're, maybe you're sending over a pitch or a proposal or your initial ballpark fee estimate is to say that, you know, Hey, this, this is a $50,000 project and it assumes that, you know, we'd start in June and we'd finish by September. And it assumes that all your, you know, your content is. Uh, complete. And it also assumes that we're using uh, agency's standard form of terms and conditions. And if any of those assumptions are untrue, we're happy to talk to you about how that affects the fees and costs. Mm -hmm. And so when the client says, we insist on our standard terms of agreement, then you at least you've set the stage for having a conversation about, you know, now I have to change the fee. Right. Uh, Because if we're going to use our standard terms, we can give you a standard fee. But if you want one-sided crazy fortune 500 procurement department terms, it can affect the cost of, of the deal. And, you know, the thing I like to remind folks about is that the price of work isn't just about deliverables and time, anything else in that contract that allocates risk or make things, makes things more difficult for the creative agency that affects price. And so maybe you're willing to agree to the onerous terms that the uh, that the client is insisting on in their standard form of agreement, but you would do it only if you get properly paid for it. If someone says it's going to be net 90, you just increase the cost of the fee or you increase your deposit or you do something else to compensate you for that delay in getting money. So don't just think that the fee is related to deliverables. It's related to everything else. 
Let's talk a little bit about ownership agreements among partners. Um, I know that can be a sticky issue for creative agencies. How, how are you usually involved with agencies in those sort of partnership agreements? And, uh, and what should partners or people who are thinking about partnering know about legally? Yeah, folks either come to me and maybe there's two or three of them and they're setting up a brand new partnership or maybe it's a, a sole owner that decides to add a partner. The issue is having setting up the script, setting up the plan for when that partnership falls apart. And that you know falls apart sounds negative and bad, but agency's not going to last forever. It's it's going to change, it's going to iterate and having a plan for that now and making that plan now before problems arise or money's on the table or whatever, um, it's much easier than trying to do it midstream. And so while most people come to me and they say, Josh, we need a partnership agreement. We're going to split everything 50-50. They always got the, the dollars figured out and that's fine. But there's, I think there's more important things to figure out that are more applicable to that time down the road when things change and things change for a bunch of different reasons. Sometimes, sometimes someone gets a dream job offer. Sometimes you have a sick family member and you got to move to the other coast and take care of an ailing family member and you can't work in the agency and it's, you're not going to be able to for the next 18 months. Sometimes it's, someone's not carrying their weight and they need to go. Um, sometimes they just get, you find out that you can't work well together and you're better just as, as beer drinking friends, lots of different reasons, but defining the consequences of when those things happen up front is going to make it smoother for the agency. I can tell you, I have two matters, uh, right now that are, there's no ownership agreement. The owners don't want to work well together, but there's no mechanism for winding things up for moving on. And it's causing the business can't proceed. Neither of the owners can proceed. Well, they can't, they don't have any clarity about what they're supposed to do. Can they solicit clients? Is there any competitive restrictions? What about the portfolio? Can they refer to that stuff that they did while they were in the agency as part of their portfolio? And so I really focus on that partnership agreement, ownership agreement, whatever, as a bunch of preventative measures for when the inevitable change happens. And, you know, the other thing is, is that an ownership agreement is a, is a backstop. It's a backstop when things don't go wrong, people can't communicate because they're mad or because maybe someone is disabled or in a different country or whatever, but the, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to follow this rigid script. If the parties can agree otherwise, you know, if the parties figure out something over a cup of coffee, you can always ignore whatever's in the shareholder agreement and do that. But the shareholder agreement is there for when all bets are off and people aren't communicating and you still need the business still needs a path forward. So even if you're not worried about your ability to work things out with your partner, um, you're really making planning for the business and investment in the business. So now I've taught, I've interviewed probably about 11 different creative agencies so far for this podcast. And I think that, you know, it's come up fairly often that creative agencies have had sort of ownership issues in the past. It seemed like it's, it's pretty common. You know, is there a way of sort of avoiding that? Is there not just from sort of a contractual um, standpoint, but are there things that people should know before they get into business with yeah. each other? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, life throws you curveballs and having a conversation, it's just like 
conversations you have at the beginning of a job with a client is you talk to your partner. Don't just talk about the good times, but talk about the bad times. Um, you know, talk about problems that you've had in business in, in the past and how those would be resolved. Um, just, just talking about how you would happen. What if, what if we find out that we don't work well together? What, what should we do? Um, you know, sometimes my clients have said, if this partnership doesn't work, you know, we're going to dissolve it and nobody can use the, the branding. You know, we created a new agency name and nobody can use it. And the idea that it's either us together or, or nobody, and then there's nothing to fight over. Right. And so there's some strategies that maybe you can come up with to simplify, uh, some of the things only focusing the the mistake I see made is like I said, everybody has got the dollars the dollar signs figured out on how we're going to split all the profits. But very little talk happens about what happens if we don't get along? What happens if a client sues us? What happens if we just get tired of working together? What should we do? And simply having those conversations will go a long way towards uh, avoiding those disputes. And like everything else in life and in agency work is that if you have a an understanding before you get into it, you're in a you're in a better position to deal. Just get it all out on the table, and if you're getting into business with someone that's not a close, is do your due diligence. I mean, sure you're going to have a, a cup of coffee and, and get to know them, but talk to friends, talk to uh, other clients, and and do your due diligence on how that person how that person has worked and how that other relationships have worked out with that person, and they're not all meant to be. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person or not willing to take risks. It, it means you've done your homework and you've made a decision based on what works well for you. And that's, that's okay. What about, um, ownership as sort of compensation? Um, I know that in some industries it's, you know, like even lawyers, um, you have like partners at a law firm, you're there long enough and you become a partner. Like, um, is it common or uncommon or a good idea or a bad idea to use like ownership as sort of a form of compensation? Yeah. So it, it's a real, it's a real challenge and I won't say that it's good or bad, but the, the, the key thing is to think about what are our objectives with giving ownership and does the ownership achieve those objectives? And I think sometimes some of that is, is skipped over because we just say, oh, I own something. That, that must have value. Well, I mean, owning a piece of stock in Intel is different because it's going to grow and it's going to appreciate and you're going to buy it for $10 and sell it for $20. With having a piece of uh, an agency, it's, it's not going to appreciate in the same way that uh, a growth investment does. I mean, maybe the business grows, but a lot of the income and earnings flow out of the business in a year in, in any particular year. And so there's not a lot of enterprise value that builds up. So investing for appreciation isn't usually one of the goals. And so what is the other piece of ownership? And it's periodic income that you get a slice of the, the profits at the end of the year. Well, if that's the goal, there's lots of ways to achieve that bonuses and phantom stock and all sorts of different things to achieve the economic benefits of ownership without ownership. I mean, because ownership is a big deal, especially with employees when you have, you know, maybe a very valuable key employee. And like I said, everything changes and that relationship changes. Maybe you have to fire them. Maybe they quit. Maybe they go to work for a competitor. You need to get that equity back. And suddenly you have a 
former employee and possibly a disgruntled former employee that owns a chunk of your business. And there are ways to manage that with contracts. But when I take us, when I help agencies take a step back and say, well, what are our goals here? Well, we want to put a little money in their pocket to reward them for the company having a, a good year. There's other ways to accomplish that. So there's a spectrum of costs and benefits, and and that's what you just need to look at. And are the potential costs worth the worth the benefits? Equity for employees is more costs more money to implement than maybe a simple bonus plan. So is that worth it? Even though there are challenges to giving ownership to employees, I fully appreciate that there's something intangible about saying I'm an owner. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes has that's sometimes the value that the benefit that you're shooting for and that motivates people differently and it 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 makes them behave differently and i i totally get that but just be sure you weigh it in terms of all the other consequences and scope if someone wants to come along and buy your agency and one or two small percentage owners vote against it you know hopefully you have good contracts in place but that can really slow down or cause a problem in a deal so it all depends on your goals and objectives uh, mm-hmm. for your business and on how you want to reward your people. What about a profit sharing? Is that is that very common in um, creative agencies? Yeah, I think it's on that spectrum of you know bonus plans, profit sharing of how uh, to reward your people, and the methods for doing it are are many. Um, I have some clients that use sort of a point system based on seniority, and some use just a pure discretionary uh, discretionary system that the, the boss decides, you know, and the, I think the important thing is you're, you're balancing on compensation systems. You're balancing between sort of the management goals of making people feel involved and valuable and, and rewarded, and you're balancing that against transparency and also sometimes the business needs. And so sometimes you can have a lean year and maybe everybody work their tails off, but there's not enough money to go around. And that those are hard situations. And sometimes transparency can have a lot of value because employees can sort of look at a formula or look at the month of the year and look at the profitability and they know what they're going to put in their pocket. And that, that feels pretty good. But sometimes the business needs the flexibility to deal with life that comes up. I, you know, I believe that through good management and good communication with employees is that you can empower and and make people, you can achieve the benefits of, say, a formula, even if you don't have a formula with good management. It takes a ton of work and it takes a ton of communication. But if you want the flexibility, there are ways to deal with that. And, you know, just like everything else we've talked about today is communication up, up front is a big part of it. So, but it's just one of many different alternatives to rewarding folks. Yeah, I know that, I mean, we we haven't pro- profited tremendously yet as a business, but we've had profit a couple, the last couple of years, and we basically have just put that back into the business um, and people's salaries and bonuses and stuff like that. But yeah, I think that we would feel a little bit nervous doing profit sharing just because it's hard to know with a growing business exactly where we need to put our money at the end of the year, what we need to prepare for, 
you know, we've almost uh, maxed out the, our office space or we're going to have to get an, another office space next year. So, and we just don't know how much money we're going to make. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and businesses, and as businesses grow, then you have a, maybe you have a little bit more stability or a little bit more certainty, or maybe your business takes on, you know, you, you suddenly move to more retainer agreements. And so you can look 12 months ahead and you know, well, we're going to have this base of income. And that's a really great place for an agency to be. It's a difficult place to be. Um, but, you know, compensation policies don't have to be written in stone. And so maybe you have maybe you have a flexible, I'll figure it out at the end of the year system to start with, with good communication and, and actions that back up that communication. And then maybe later on the business changes and you're able to provide some formula mm-hmm. or you're something specific um, or, a, or a, some sort of scale system or point system or whatever you choose to do, uh, or maybe it's full on ownership. Uh, but, but don't think that you're going to put one system in place and it's going to last forever because the business change and the needs change. And maybe you want to encourage growth. Maybe you want to encourage stability. Those might be different types of compensation plans. Maybe you want to build up for the, the business to be sold. Uh, different type of compensation plan might be designed to help achieve that goal. So Mm -hmm. having a little flexibility, I mean, the lawyer always likes a little flexibility, right? (laughs) But having a little flexibility can, can help you uh, stay nimble and tailor those things to the goals. Nice. So how can an agency better utilize um, their lawyer? Yeah. I think the main thing that comes to my mind is when you are, the, the main thing agencies ask for is they, they need contract review and negotiation. And so when you send over the contract for review, be it yours or the other sides or the changes requested by the other side, uh, please also send along a copy of the statement of work or describe what you're doing because my feedback or any lawyer's feedback is going to vary greatly. Is this a $500 deal or a $50,000 deal? Is this a three-week deal or a three-month deal? Is it is it a logo or are you doing a, 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 a giant website? Are you doing, a, maybe you're doing an event production or a video shoot? The feedback, it, it depends greatly on that context. And so, so many times I get a contract in my email, Josh, can you give this a look? And my first question is, yeah, I'd love to send me over the statement of work or could you, could you give me a description of what you're doing? And that way you're going to get advice that's tailored to that particular that particular job and its particular risks. And it's not going to be that, that advice in a vacuum, that generic advice that we talked about before that sometimes isn't helpful. Um, that's where, that's where, you know, I can, I can understand where lawyers will default. What's the most conservative and risk avoidance thing to do, because I don't know the specifics. So I'm going to crank everything down really tight. So getting that, getting that context to your lawyer will help them, and help you make the business choices about, you know, what are risks that you can accept and what are risks that you're not willing to accept. You know, if it's a, if it's a client, that's a great relationship you've been working with for years and you have a high degree of trust, that's a different scope of review than the exact same work for a brand new client, create that context and you'll get better output from, from your lawyer. Nice. Um, and, and what should a creative agency sort of reasonably expect from their lawyer? Yeah. And this is hard because every lawyer is different. And I've, you know, my practice has certainly changed over the years and, and, um, 
every owner, every agency owner is different. Um, but I, you know, if you feel like you don't understand your contract or your clients aren't understanding your contract, I think it's fair to demand that your lawyer do better. And, you know, I can raise my hand and I was guilty of bad legal writing for, you know, a good chunk of my career. And I worked hard <laughs> to change that and, um, to make, to make contracts be something that my clients and, and their, and their clients could understand. Um, and I think that getting to a place where you have a, a document to have a constructive conversation about, and like I said, decrease transaction expenses, decrease transaction time and, and get, get the deposit in. And so you can start work. I mean, that, that's the business goal here. So let's focus on the business goal. And I think it's, it's, it's fair for a creative agency to push back a little bit on if you feel like it's full of legalese and jargon that you don't understand. And if you feel like, if you feel like that, that your clients are always pushing back or always really struggling with your contract, well, chances are you've got something that's, um, too one-sided and it could be adjusted and improved. And it's fair to demand that, that your client write that way. And if, if they're unwilling to, or they say they can't, you can do better than that. And there's lots of folks that, that can help you do better. And uh, one last question for you. Um, what about a creative agency that was just starting out and didn't have a whole, you know, didn't have much money to spend on um, a lawyer? Um, what can they do to sort of protect themselves? Is there, you know, like a small amount of money they should invest just getting a contract put together? Or, or could they use some of the advice they've heard today to sort of piece something together? Like, what what would your advice be to them? That's a, you know, that's a great that's a great question and really practical. So I appreciate it. And, you know, sometimes even though it can be a, a good chunk of change, I think investing in that standard form of services agreement as early as you reasonably can is a good idea because that's going to be a template that you use with all of your deals and you'll change it for all your deals. You'll negotiate it and you'll make adjustments to customize it. But it's, you know, a little pain up front, but it has a lot of long term uh, long term benefits down the mm -hmm. roads as you as you use it. Um, uh, short of that, um, I it's completely reasonable to uh, ask your lawyer when you get contracts from the other side is to say, look, my budget is 400 bucks and I want as much feedback as you can give me for 400 bucks on this contract. And I'll sometimes do those reviews, the, the deliverable is sort of a bullet point list of comments and questions and feedback and edit. And, you know, they don't get a, a, a complete revised, you know, document that uses good standard English, but they get a lot of feedback and, and you have to do some of the homework yourself and decide what to implement. But I mean, that's what it means to start up any business is you end up doing a lot of homework yourself, but it's fair for you to give uh, a lawyer a budget and say, I want to do as much as we can within this. And here's, here's my goals. You know, I want it balanced or I want it one-sided or whatever your goals are. That's the way you'll, you'll get the most bang for your buck. When you can come back and invest in that later, terrific. It's fair for you to put some limits on the lawyer and say, this is what I can do now. And I'll sometimes say, you know, that's, that's not enough, you know, to do what you want to do, but, yeah. um, you can quickly get to a reasonable amount of money and, and get the, get some feedback and then you do better next time. And it's like everything else. You, you iterate and you 
do as best you can here. And then when you get a little bit bigger and you get a little bit more bucks, then you can iterate again and improve and improve and improve. And pretty soon, you know, you'll have some expertise and you'll be able to do a bunch of stuff on your own and you'll have a good contract and you'll need your lawyer less and less. Yeah, that's great. Talking myself out of a job. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, um, this has Josh, been great. I think that our listeners will find this information really valuable. Terrific. You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton. When he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com.